Good morning. I'm Eugene Meyer, president of the Federalist Society, and want to welcome you all to this conference on direct democracy from the framers to the 21st century. It's our second annual uh, Western conference. Uh, we're uh, delight, delighted by the turnout and delighted and to, to have what we think is a, a wonderful group of speakers. Uh, I think this this first this first panel will be um, uh uh, it's, it's extremely interesting. Um, our title is What Would the Framers Have Thought of Direct Democracy? And I am going to very quickly introduce you to your moderator, and he's going to take it from there. Uh, and your moderator is someone who's been involved with the Federal Society for a long time, involved with a lot of other things for a long time. Um, he's played a role as a, as, as, as a judge, as one of our prominent, uh, most prominent lawyers and, and legal experts, and uh, as, and most recently as the Dean of Pepperdine Law School, um, which he has really been, uh, I don't know if I exactly say reinvigorating, but definitely uh, the, the, the school is clearly on, uh, on the move and doing extremely well. So uh, without further ado, it's my honor to introduce you to Dean Ken Starr. Thanks. Well, good morning and welcome to this. Thank you. And welcome to this uh, wonderful a place that is a, a living memorial uh, to uh, one of our great uh, presidents. And a number of us in the room were privileged to serve under President Reagan, uh, thereby giving away my age uh, and to, in my case, to have been nominated by him in a rare lapse of judgment to a judicial position which I was unable to keep. But moderators are to simply uh, introduce and to facilitate and uh, I think in light of the time available and the richness of the topic, what would the framers have thought uh, about a direct democracy? It is uh, better simply for the moderator, like the proverbial child, to be seen and not heard. And so I look forward very much to the comments first uh, of a friend of longstanding and a great, great uh, observer of our legal culture and our constitutional order, would you welcome Professor Marcy Hamilton? <laughs> Professor Hamilton uh, is spending this a year at uh, at Princeton. You know, Princeton has a law school these days. Where you? No, just kidding. Uh, Princeton. Uh, I was uh, told by no lesser authority than uh, Robbie George's predecessors, the holder of the McCormick Chair on Jurisprudence, in response to my. Naive question, has Princeton ever considered establishing a law school? Uh, and Walter Murphy, Robbie's predecessor, says, oh, we have to go through that exercise about every 20 years or so. And the answer is always no. But Marcy, of course, is well known to us, uh, having been at uh, the Cardozo uh, Law School of Yeshiva University, where she holds a very, or held a very distinguished uh, chair. But she's now visiting professor at the Law and Public Affairs uh, uh, dimension of the Woody Wilson School, the Woodrow Wilson School uh, at Princeton. So we are looking forward to her comments. Uh, Marcy will speak uh, first. Forgive me, I'm now a Californian. We're always on a first-name basis here. And uh, we will then uh, be edified by the comments and reflections of Maimon Schwarzschild, who uh, is a Californian. That is, he is a professor of law at the University of San Diego. 
So we're very eager to hear from them both. And then the lively conversation that will follow. Each speaker will have approximately 12 to 15 minutes uh, uh, to set forth her or his views. Uh, then we will have a, a brief interchange. And then in lively Federalist Society fashion, we will have an open conversation. Join me in welcoming Professor Marcy Hamilton. Thanks very much, Dean Starr. It's an honor to be up here with you and my own longtime friend in this field. Uh, it's also an honor to speak at the Ronald Reagan Library. When I got the uh, invitation to do the speech and saw the location, I thought this is a place I'd always wanted to come, and it's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, we're talking this morning about the, uh, the not original intent so much as the history behind a direct democracy, because as Beth Garrett, who will be speaking this afternoon, has pointed out, we now live in an era of hybrid democracy. It's no longer an either-or question of uh, direct democracy or representative democracy in our current age, but it was at the time of the framing. So I'm going to talk about what the framers were thinking about and, more importantly, what the theological influences were at the time that created conditions for rejecting direct democracy. I'll then reflect a little bit about how those principles would play out in the current situation. Uh, from 1776 to 1787 was when uh, Calvinism, Presbyterianism, had its height. In fact, its only influence of real meaning over the course of American history. But of course, that's an extraordinarily important era. And a lot of that force came from the Reverend John Witherspoon, who was president of the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, and was the educator of a number of the framers, including Madison. Madison said about Witherspoon that he had given him a strong dose of Calvinism. And so it's worthwhile to examine what it was that they were learning in the Calvinist tradition at this important school and to find out what were the background assumptions that the framers would have come with. Witherspoon was a public intellectual. At the time of the framing, the most important public intellectuals were the preachers because they were the individuals who traveled from state to state. Almost all of them were itinerant in some sense. And so their ideas were communicated to a much wider band of individuals than, say, a state uh, representative or a state governor. These were important people, and Witherspoon was one of the most important. He signed the Declaration of Independence after encouraging people to part from Britain and, as I say, taught Madison and others. The question at the convention was, how do you fill the void that's created by the failure of our first constitution? Right? Our first constitution was the Articles of Confederation. It was an abject failure. It did not work. And we often sell our constitution worldwide saying we have the best constitutional system in America. We often forget to mention that we didn't get it right the first time, but we didn't. At the convention, there was a shared view that you simply cannot trust the people. Now, if you read the Federalist Papers, it's a much sunnier view because the Federalist Papers were written to persuade the people to agree to ratification of the Constitution. But if you read the notes of the debates, 
the people do not get a lot of praise. In fact, they don't get any praise whatsoever. So the failure of the, of the Articles of Confederation, combined with a worldview that was available at the time, led the framers at the convention to have a very negative approach toward any idea of direct democracy. Now, the Calvinism that was being taught by Witherspoon was just straightforward out of the Institutes. And he was not a fancy theologian, Witherspoon. He was not nearly as brilliant as Jonathan Edwards. He's often thought as our most brilliant uh, theologian in all of American history. But he was a person heavily involved in politics who understood public service and trained those who were in it. The fundamental precept of Calvinism is the fallen nature of humankind. That everyone who holds power is going to be likely to abuse it. Everyone. There's no one who's going to hold power that we can trust to hold it and not abuse that power. Now, when the Articles of Confederation were created, it was a much sunnier view of the human disposition. Much more enlightenment view. We were heady. We were beating the British, we were breaking free, we were looking more toward French precepts than we were toward anything else, and then it didn't work out. We landed where the Calvinists uh, would have put us, which is don't trust anybody. And that lack of trust permeated the entire set of discussions at the convention. The discussion was never uh, what is by far the best way to do something the discussion was always, if we create this structure, how can we deter someone from abusing the power there? So if we have a committee of presidents, which was suggested, will we have less abuse of power than if we have a solo president? Will we have less abuses of power if we, in fact, have an a indirectly elected president and Senate? So the tenor of the discourse was, don't trust anybody. Everyone has fallen, and therefore... Uh, we have to be careful. But if your view, actually, were that everybody is fallen and incapable of great things, then you wouldn't do what the framers did, right? You'd do what Hobbes did, suggest a benevolent dictator is your only way to any kind of liberty or freedom of any kind. That's not where the framers went, obviously. They obviously set up yet another form of representative democracy with a lot more bells and whistles than the Articles of Confederation had instituted. One of the prevailing ideas at the time was that each of us has an individual calling. This is an idea that came straight from Luther through Calvin, through Knox in Scotland, and was prevalent at the time of the framing. And this notion of a calling was that each individual is actually an equal member of the priesthood. Right? This was how Calvin was breaking away from the Roman Catholic tradition, and everybody is equal in terms of their value to the society. What that meant is that a representative's calling was to be a representative, but a baker's calling was to be a baker, and they were to be independent and distinctive, and by everyone fulfilling their greatest capacity for the calling to which they had been called, the whole society would work better which is to say representatives were no longer rulers. They were viewed as on the same level as everybody else. They were just citizens. Just so happened their calling was to representation, 
while the uh, farmer's calling was to be a farmer. Equally valuable in the eyes of God, but the representative, it turns out, as the theory developed, had the much harder job. Because the representative was required to serve the people, not just to be a ruler, but to serve the people in a way that would increase the larger public good. And that was the primary mode of thinking about these issues at about the time of the framing. And it came almost directly from Calvinism. Now, I don't want to overplay Calvinism. Right. Take it from me that at 1787, the power of the Calvinists fell rather dramatically. They've never regained complete control, to say the least. But their ideas, their theological constructs were in the air. And those ideas were available to be transformed by the framers into useful ideas for creating a new government. So it's not that I'm making a claim that we have a Presbyterian uh, constitution or government at all. It's that the ideas within Calvinism were nicely shaped for the framers to borrow. Now, the way in which uh, representation was thought of within the Calvinist tradition was that Calvin believed that the Roman Catholic Church had become completely corrupt, as you know, and his answer was not to get rid of the church. His answer was to continue the church. He was going to continue the church, but he was going to create structural reforms within the church. The structural reforms he recommended were from the ancient churches, he called it, or the first 300 years of the church. And his suggestion was that the church had started out as a representative body that was chosen by the members, and it was only through abuses of power that it had gotten to the point where the pope was infallible. So his response was not the church can't possibly survive. And his response was not that you need a different pope. He said you need a completely different system, and it should be elected representatives who are accountable to the people so that the people can serve uh, the ends that they are supposed to be serving on their own. He had first been the one to introduce this concept of universal players in the priesthood, some of them farmers, some representatives. Now, direct democracy in that setting, didn't have a chance. The deep distrust of the people, the special distrust of the mob in the light of Shea's rebellion and other developments leading up to the convention, uh, no one at the convention was suggesting that it would be a great idea if we now let the people rule. That simply was not what they were talking about. And we had one from Pennsylvania suggesting we go back to a monarchy. That's where we were. We're trying to figure out if we didn't get representation to work, is there any way to make it work? And they said, yes, there is. There's a way to make it work, but it's got to be in a way that makes representatives accountable to the people they must serve, as opposed to being rulers above them. And so direct democracy just didn't fit the tenor of the debate. It just wasn't the mood of the convention. They distrusted the people, but they also distrusted the idea that the people could instruct their representatives what to do, right? That would have been an intermediate choice, which was suggested at the convention and rejected. So the people weren't even in a position to be capable of instructing their representatives, which is something the states had done under the Articles of Confederation. 
And so the question was, uh, what would be the role of a representative and a citizen together in the system? And the legislature was thought to be so untrustworthy after the state legislatures under the Articles of Confederation that the framers in the notes of the debate referred to legislatures as vortices of corruption, right? So if you have a view in your head that you can't trust anybody, and then you add to that that legislatures are vortices of corruption, I mean, it's kind of a miracle we have any kind of representative democracy. It was a very dark view of the possibilities. But their answer was to check power for everybody at every level. Nobody was supposed to be able to get the kind of power that would allow them to spin off into their own orbit, which is what had gone wrong in the state, the state legislatures beforehand. So the convention explicitly rejected direct democracy at a federal level. In the Guarantee Clause, it rejected direct democracy as a matter of state governance, although that's a non-justiciable doctrine according to the Supreme Court, so we don't have a uh, a lively uh, set of judicial opinions to talk about that. But the Guarantee Clause makes it relatively clear that direct democracy was not favored at the time. So the question is, then, how do we end up with hybrid democracy? Best brilliant way to talk about it. Uh, we end up with, brilliant, with this brilliant way of talking about it because the spirit of the convention goes even underneath direct democracy or representative democracy to the principle of curbing abuses of power. And during the 20th century, of course, we saw an increasing inability to curb the excesses of legislators, the vortices of corruption, right, turned out to be what they were said to be, arenas where it was very hard to bring elected representatives to accountability to the people. The fundamental problem in the 20th century, in my view, is accountability, whether it's through delegation to the executive branch or whether it's through the inability to get legislators to listen to what's necessary to make the uh, public good. That's the problem. So what would the framers in the spirit of what they were doing have said about this new system where we do have direct democracy in some circumstances competing with legislative representation, and we have them being pitted against each other, right? I, I think that they would say a couple of things. One, nobody should be as surprised that there have been abuses of power by elected representatives. That's just to be expected, and the moment you put your guard down with respect to those in power is the moment that you will be taken, taken advantage of. So that fundamental view of human nature would be something they would say would explain how you ended up in an unaccountable situation. But they would also say that you don't solve the problem by replacing the names. You solve it by real structural reform. They did not view the Constitution as perfect. They did not view themselves as demigods, to say the least. They viewed themselves as doing the best they could in the time they had. Madison was very concerned there would never be enough virtuous men to take the positions in governance that they had created. So real concern about the ability to make this an accountable and virtuous system, how do you meet that with structural reform? For the framers, what they did in response to the Articles of Confederation was go back to the table and say, well, that structure didn't work. What's the structure that's going to work? 
What we've seen evolving with direct democracy is other proposals for structural change to limit the power of elected representatives who are not answering to the people. But one thing you see is that across the country, some states have very vivid uh, direct democracy, the California initiative system, right, where you need a PhD to understand what you're voting for in general. And some states don't have any at all. So the question is, uh, why would that be? Why would it be that some states have not gone this route, but others have uh, gone this route a very long distance? And my answer is that uh, it's because representative democracy has succeeded better in some states than in others. And the reason for that is there are states who have amended their constitutions over the course of time to create greater accountability, right? Something like uh, the one subject rule in a number of states, which means that only one subject may be in any one bill, so the people can't be surprised by the bill that says new parks and then increases your taxes, right? So some states have tried the one subject rule. Other states have done what's called a three-day introduction rule, which is to say that no bill may be passed unless it's read publicly three different days so that the people have some opportunity to figure out what it is that's going on in that vortex of corruption. Some of those have worked. Some have worked better than others. So one of the questions you have to ask about hybrid democracy, I'm sure my time's just about up, uh, is this. Is hybrid democracy, or the direct democracy part of it, is it just too easy to run to, right? To say to the people, you know, you really should be making the decisions. We're doing a really bad job at the representative level. Why don't you start making the decisions? And is it a failure of the political will to fix representative democracy through altering the constitutional structure in any particular state? The federal government has never amended its federal constitution to increase accountability in any truly meaningful way. Some states have. The federal government has not. And so the question I think that has to be on the table with respect to direct democracy is not is it a terrible or a great thing. The framers obviously looked at it as something that was not tenable, not a good idea. But is it getting you to the end that you want to be? And here's the end that the framers had in mind, that Calvin had in mind, and that is the larger public good. Not the aggregation of preferences, not majoritarianism, but the larger public good. I think that should be the test for all the versions of direct democracy you'll hear about this afternoon. Thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Dean Starr, and uh, that was great, Marcy. Um, it is. Uh, an honor to be here um, and a double honor to speak uh, at a podium at the Reagan Library. Um, I was chatting with a colleague at uh, the University of San Diego where I teach a couple of days ago and um, I said, well, over the weekend I'll be on a panel about the framers and direct democracy. He looked at me and he said, they were again it. As usual, there is some truth in the conventional wisdom. Um, if direct democracy means the people as a whole assembling frequently or all the time um, and trying to govern, 
deciding public questions as they arise, unmediated or even not very much mediated by Republican institutions which slow things down um, and which provide a framework of political insulation, uh, then there is no doubt, uh, as Marcy rightly says, that the framers rejected direct democracy, uh, certainly as a model for the national government. Uh, in Federalist 10, Madison wrote about the turbulence of pure democracy um, and the direct democracy consciously echoing Hobbes, um, uh, who spoke of uh, uh, the state of nature as uh, life being nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, Madison said direct democracies um, are as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Um, the the um, direct democracy that we know in the form of initiative and referendum uh, in California and in uh, many other mostly Western states, it seems to me is different in various ways. It was introduced by the progressives in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, who, like the founders, the progressives, were ambivalent uh, about government by the people. Um, Marcy in emphasized the negative, the dark side of that in the framers' uh, uh, minds and in their work, and I think that's, that's absolutely right and fair, though there was clearly a lighter side, of, an enlightenment side of it as well. In the end, um, the framers, however dark their view, uh, were uh, still clumped for government in which the ultimate authority was the people. Uh, that same ambivalence you see in the progressives. Um, on the one hand, they believed in expertise. Um, a lot of you probably live in, in places where there is a city manager. Uh, that's a heritage of the progressives who wanted expert business-like government. Um, at the same time, so they were, they were suspicious of, of machine politics. In a sense, they were suspicious of all politics, as the founders were. Um, but they also introduced the, and, and, and campaigned successfully in the West for initiative referendum, um, for uh, opening up and in that sense making more popular government. So there was that ambivalence on the part of the progressives. I think there was a, 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 a parallel ambivalence on the part of the, the founders. Uh, voter initiatives um, are embedded, as it were in the political institutions, otherwise representative and Republican institutions, uh, of the states, like this one, uh, that have it, extensively regulated by their laws, um, as laid down by the state constitutions and the legislatures. Initiatives take a lot of time and effort and money. Um, they certainly don't provide for the people to decide every public issue as it comes up. Unlike the Greek city-states, uh, the political uh, picture in Oregon uh, or in California in the past century uh, has not been uh, a picture of uh, a political a polity that is nasty, brutish, or short, uh, as Madison accurately summarized the history of the Greek city-states. State, democracy, uh, state direct democracy takes many forms. Um, most of them non-controversial. Most states uh, have at least some local referenda, if not initiatives, often on tax matters, 
sometimes on special districts, school districts, sewer districts, agricultural district, d- districts. Uh, but the high-octane form of direct democracy is the voter initiative, in particular the statewide voter initiative. Um, that's a form of direct democracy that is, as Marcy rightly says, um, uh, available in, in fact, about half the states, about 24 states, uh, all but seven or eight of those states west of the Mississippi. So it tends to be a Western phenomenon. Um, and we can talk later on about why, why that is. Uh, it seems to me that that high octane, politically and ideologically even, signif- most significant form of direct democracy is compatible with the ideas of the, of the framers. Uh, the founders in particular, I think, had three overlapping ideas that bear on this. Uh, first, they were checks and balances people. Second, they were pluralists. And third, the federalists were federalist. Um, a word about pluralism, because in a way, what I'll try to do is look at this in particular through a pluralist lens. Uh, pluralism is a modern term. Um, it wasn't one used by the, by the founders, but it ex- expresses an idea, I think, that was central to their thinking. Uh, pluralism means embracing a variety of interests, groups, classes. Uh, for the founders, that especially included religious denominations and sects. Madison wanted a big state, not a big government, um, but a state with as many people as possible, probably with as much territory as possible. And his idea was explicit in, in Federalist 51. It, 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 the, the idea recurs throughout a lot of the founding documents. Uh, the idea is that the more people and the more interest groups and the more denominations, um, the less likely, the less possible it is for any single group, any single faction, as Madison put it, uh, to dominate and to uh, oppress everybody else. Um, pluralism also meant a plurality of choices, uh, which means autonomy, human autonomy, freedom of choice, an idea that is basic to liberty uh, and to what we know as in political theory as political liberalism. Finally, pluralism suggests that there are a plurality of good things uh, which can't be rationalized into a single system, but you can only make rough compromises among them. Uh, And there's an element of good and bad in most things, that no institution or system or person uh, is perfect. Representative institutions, for instance, as Marcy, Marcy rightly says, were on the one hand the institutions that were being designed and adopted by the founders, but they were mistrusted. And they were mistrusted uh, because though they are good in many ways, there are problems with representation, as there are with anything in an imperfect world. One problem, of course, is what economists and political scientists call agency costs the problem of representatives looking out for their own interests rather than the public interest. Uh, another, and we can talk about it in the discussion period later if we, if we had time, is what political scientists call the cycling problem 
um, the uh, Arrow's theorem, the idea that the representative institutions in their trading off and log rolling uh, will inevitably frustrate actual majorities um, a lot of the time, if not all the time. Voter initiatives, direct democracy as it is most importantly known in, in California and in the West, and as is most controversial. Uh, it seems to me are, number one, a check and balance. That was what the progressives intended. Um, a counterweight against insulated or self-interested representatives, or in California, gerrymandered ones. Um, number two, they are pluralist. Uh, number three, they are federalist. Uh, federalist in some ways that we'll talk about in a minute. Pluralist in, it seems to me, three ways. Uh, number one, um, voter initiatives, direct democracy in the form that, that matters, uh, is institutionally pluralist, an element of political life that doesn't exist at the federal level, or in many states. There's no initiative or referendum, of course, at the federal level. Um, the um, initiative represents a kind of political pluralism even within states that provide for them. Um, there were, uh, over a recent 10-year period in California, for example, a total of about 75 statewide initiatives that qualified for the ballot, 33 of which passed. Uh, in the California legislature, by contrast, thousands of bills are introduced during each biennial session and hundreds are enacted. So initiatives are a small part of the state system, even where the state has initiatives. And also, they're a relatively slow part. Uh, it takes time to collect signatures and put an initiative on the ballot. And in fact, most initiatives, overwhelmingly most, uh, that some group or some individual starts trying to promote, uh, fail, uh, all of which I think would have been, would have appealed to the cautious founders. A second way that initiatives expand pluralism, it seems to me, is by opening the door to a wider range of people and ideas, a greater pluralism of participants in politics. California initiatives are a good example. Uh, among the people, in one way or another, political outsiders uh, who have qualified initiatives for the statewide ballot are Ward Connerly, whom we'll hear from this afternoon, uh, Ron Unz, Ralph Nader, Cesar Chavez, Lyndon LaRouche, and Howard Jarvis and Paul Gann. Some of these initiatives, notably LaRouche's, uh, went on to be defeated, uh, but some of them succeeded. Um, often, usually in most of the cases, certainly in the cases of the people I just named, against vigorous establishment opposition. Uh, I can't resist quoting Harvard, Howard Jarvis about this. Uh, after Proposition 13 was passed, he famously said, for the first time in 6,000 years of recorded history, Proposition 13 brought together capital, labor, management, education, politics, bureaucracy, 
all goose-stepping down life's highway together to defeat Proposition 13, and we still beat the hell out of them. <laughs> and finally, uh, initiatives create, it seems to me, an expanded pluralism of outcomes, results. Uh, among the initiatives in California that have succeeded in the past decade and a half, uh, which it is difficult or impossible to imagine being passed by the legislature, are term limits, marijuana reform, legislators are loath to be soft on drugs, uh, requiring public education in English, doing away with bilingual education, and the bilingual ed lobby was a formidable lobby in Sacramento, uh, forbidding affirmative action preferences by race, sex, and ethnicity by the state government. Um, Ward Connerly was the, um, a moving spirit behind that. We'll hear from him today. Um, the founders, it seems to me, like the progressives, uh, mistrusted the people ruling directly without, without institutional constraints, but they mistrusted political institutions as well. Um, all the founding documents are explicit about this, uh, hence the array of counterweights and checks and balances, including and the example of the recent California successful initiatives are an example of a check and a balance in the sense of things being doable through this process that probably wouldn't have been doable or certainly wouldn't have been doable uh, by any other means. The founders knew about the New England town meeting. Um, they never said a word against it. Many states in the founding period had referenda on their new state constitutions. The founders didn't object. Federalism, it seems to me, minimizes some of the genuine drawbacks and dangers of direct democracy. The idea of mob rule. Uh, the idea of an ill-informed public confronted with yes or no questions, often misleading yes or no questions, uh, majorities oppressing minorities, demagoguery. Uh, these are genuine dangers um, in direct democracy, certainly unconstrained direct, direct democracy. The founders were horrified by the prospect of them. Um, the forms of direct democracy that we know in California and in many Western states um, differ in part because federalism, the availability of this only at the state level, uh, helps to minimize at least some of these dangers. Um, there are no voter initiatives in more than half the states. Where there are initiatives, most of the state's laws continue to be made by the legislature. And initiatives are subject to judicial review and can be struck down for violating federal law or the U.S. Constitution or in states where you've got um, initiatives, only statutory ones, then they can be struck down even for violating the state constitution. Federalism means that direct democracy can function as a political counterweight, but that representative democracy will not be overwhelmed by, as it were, Peasants with pitchforks. Thanks. Well, issue.
Issue has uh, been joined. I'm going to ask uh, Professor Hamilton Marcy if you would come to the podium for a brief uh, response, uh, including to this very intriguing high-octane form of direct uh, democracy that we enjoy uh, here in California. Well, uh, let me just reintroduce the framers' dark view, which I found is very useful in life anyway. You know... What's underneath direct democracy? Let's take California, for example. Uh, The people aren't ruling, right? I mean, direct democracy is surface attraction, is the people shall rule. We will actually fulfill, finally, the the phrase we misbegottenly adopted when we got rid of England, we'll have self-rule, right? Selves will rule. The problem is the minute direct democracy shows up, you see gaming of the system, and this is exactly what the framers would have expected, though they never would have expected to be able to predict how any next power would gain the system. So as soon as you have direct democracy, who are the main players in it? Setting aside Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He uses it to threaten everybody to get what he wants. The political parties, number one. Individual politicians, number two. And interest groups, number three. These are not ideas that come out of someone's kitchen that then show up on a ballot and then everybody decides that they agree with Joe. Right? These are crafted by highly funded organizations, some of which are proposed in order to deplete the political capital of a competing party. Right? So if you know that your competition at the national level is going to have some problems, you can distract them with some state initiatives on their own issues. You can actually win an election by having more, more money. Right? So... I, I, I think pluralism is uh, a nice term, but I don't think it describes what's going on in direct democracy in this state, at least. Uh, and let me say two other things. You know, Madison's biggest fear in terms of abuse of power, which he expressed during the notes of the debates, in the notes of the debates, was the fear of religious organizations individually uh, taking too much power. He pointed to the problem that religious organizations in England had been able to co-opt the decision of who could vote. That was his only reference to religion in the whole notes of the debates. He was concerned about uh, inappropriate exercises of power. What we've seen in, in very recent years, the way in which religious organizations have been able to mobilize entire states to pass uh, a, a legislative or constitutional amendments through popular vote, against gay marriage. Now, wherever you stand on that issue, set aside, that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is the ability of well-organized groups to get their agenda through a direct democracy system quickly can be breathtaking. What that means is you have left deliberation aside, and if representative democracy and answers to hard questions require deliberation, it's not there. And finally, what do the people do in direct democracy? They vote yes or no. They don't vote, well, you know, that would really work better if you did it for 10 years instead of 20 years. Or that would be a lot better if you did it in this part of the state rather than this part of the state. They do not craft the solution that has been given to them by the political party, the politician, or the interest group. So in the end, I think it's a chimera that direct democracy actually exists. Uh, for better or for worse, and now we just have more political players to watch in more actions in more locations, which is what the framers would have thought we should be doing anyway. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that, but 
we've got a lot more to do now. Thanks. As we invite you to move to the microphones that are provided uh, on either side of the podium, uh, so I invite members of the audience to, to come forward, and I will uh, recognize uh, you for the next uh, 20, uh, almost 25 minutes. Uh, let me uh, invite Maimon, if you would, to respond to what I gather is the thought that uh, Cesar Chavez and the worthies that you uh, uh, identified under the banner of pluralism are simply Madisonian factions by another name. Um, I think that's a... That's an unfactionated microphone. Um, <laughs> the the um, worthies that I named, or in some cases, um, Lyndon LaRouche comes to mind, the unworthies, um, were um, the, 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 the thought about them is that they were outsiders. Um, the, in, certainly they represented interest groups um, or tried to create interest groups, but of course there are interest groups that are immensely influential in elective professional political institutions as well. Um, the, the gay marriage debate in a way is a good example. Um, there are, I mean, in a sense, the pro-constituencies and the anti-constituencies are all interest groups, can all be tagged as factions, and in a sense they are. Uh, the question is whether they're in a position to uh, counterweight against each other, um, to make their case, and ultimately for a decision to be made that is in the public interest and that the people reflectively, um, in a state of reflective equilibrium over time, feel is in the public interest. Um, the suggestion is that direct democracy as one element at the state level in the process of making decisions about that um, is a useful thing to have in the mix. And the tradition, certainly of the West, has been, the Western states, has been not Western civilization. Um, which Mahatma Gandhi said was a contradiction in terms anyway. <laughs> um, the, the tradition of the West is that it is a good thing to, to have in the mix. Um, and um, uh, the, the case that I think I was trying to put is that that would not necessarily, or I think at all, have been incompatible with the thinking of the founders, uh, notwithstanding, or rather because, precisely because, of their omnidirectional mistrust, mistrust of the people, certainly, mistrust of professional political, political professionals also, um, of institutions, and a desire to ensure that there are counterweights, that there are checks and balances, that there's pluralism at each level. Um, two other quick thoughts. Um, one is uh, that um, the 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 darkness of the founder's vision. Um, I think that's right, but I think it was, it's, it's worth emphasizing the ambivalence of it. Um, there were among the, the founders tensions among themselves. Um, there were already proto-Hamiltonians. Um, Hamilton himself was uh, at least a proto-Hamiltonian. Um, <laughs> who were uh, indeed highly suspicious 
pervasively suspicious of the people. And, and some of them, you know, with, with monarchist or crypto-monarchist tendencies. Um, there were also Jeffersonians and uh, the proto-Jeffersonian party. Uh, they less so. Interestingly, and in, in a way I think it, it tends to confirm, confirm Marcy's point, the, the um, proto-Hamiltonians tended to be um, northeastern. Hamilton himself, of course, was a New York City guy and a graduate of Columbia, as I was. Um, uh, Jefferson and the Jeffersonian tendency tended to be more southern. Um, and in fact, through the you know, early first century of the United States, and in some ways to this day, there is a stronger populist tradition in the South, um, as there has been throughout an idea, you know, people, often the, the, the stereotype is that the South is hierarchical, and racially, for a long time, tragically, it was. Uh, but it also had a, an idea, at least among, the, the, at least among whites, um, uh, of, of democracy and of egalitarianism. Jefferson himself represented that. Uh, you see it to this day in the uh, state constitutions only in the southern states that prohibit judges, for instance, to comment to the jury um, during a lawsuit. And the idea is judges are kind of aristocrats, we don't want that, um, and we want the people represented on the jury to make their decision not in any way bullied or really even influenced by the judge. That, that's, a, that's a southern tradition and it reflects the southern egalitarian populist strain. That existed among the founders as well. Marcy will rightly say, ah, the southerners weren't Calvinists and that's right. They weren't. They were Anglicans. Um, some of them were Catholics. Uh, the, the Calvinist side was the New England side. Um, and there was a fatalist, dark New England, um, cold and uh, snowstormy um, uh, uh, mistrust of, of the people. There were, but there were, counter, there were counter tendencies as well, including uh, very much among the kind of proto-populist, Jeffersonian, um, southern, often southern, um, uh, founders. So it was a mixed picture. picture. Uh, I'll leave it there. I see the yes, you're here. I see the mad dash. We call it a stampede to the two microphones, and therefore, in the interest of pluralism, ah, here here comes someone. Uh, please, you're you're welcome to address a question to either or both the panelists. Uh, well, thank thank you. This is a question for both panelists. We've been talking a lot about uh, initiatives as a form of direct democracy. I was wondering what your opinion would be, and perhaps your opinion on what the founders' opinion would be on the 17th Amendment, which provided for the direct election of senators, which perhaps is not direct democracy, but it's direct-ish compared to what it was before, where the uh, state legislatures appointed the senators. Thank you. Well, uh, James Wilson uh, was very much in favor of that. He thought that indirect election was a problem that was going to impede the power of the people, and in my view, James Wilson was probably the most brilliant person at the convention. It's just he wasn't brilliant any time after, so we don't remember much of him, um, <laughs> sadly, sadly. Uh, but um, the, so I, I think that, and Madison would be, was opposed, right? He would not like to see direct election. Uh, and I think many of them would be appalled to learn that the states have so little power that the fact there's an electoral college is something you can't even explain to the person on the street. 
uh, that you'd have indirect elections of the president. So that the indirect election part of the Constitution, the framers were very much in favor of. We seem to have lost our ability as a culture to really uh, explain it from a, a moral center. I think that's right. Um, the, the one remnant of it that we have, of course, is that, that senators, for instance, have an exceptionally long term. There's no, certainly no other federal officer and very few other state non, non-judicial officers in any state that serve for as long as, uh, for as long as six years and therefore don't have to face the people um, for a lengthy period of time. That we still have in the Senate and I think that represents, that's, a, that's at least a, a residue of the founders' uh, desire to have a more aristocratic element in the, as part of the mix of the federal government. What they may not have anticipated is the extent to which um, judges who never face re-election um, and who have life tenure would sort of later on take over for better or for worse as the, uh, a kind of aristocratic element um, in, in federal government and in many state governments as well. Yes. Uh, I have uh, two kind of comments for a response. One is kind of a suggestion. Um, I would have thought, apart from uh, the concept of original sin being in the minds of the Puritans and Congregationalist ministers, that they would have had a pretty well-developed theology of local church governance with presbyters and elders, and also of denominational governance. In other words, how those groups of congregational churches in Massachusetts you know, if they had a state kind of governance above the local church level and that those um, ideas would have had an influence on uh, what they would have thought would have been appropriate for political leadership. And the second point is I think that probably, and we haven't really heard much of this, there was one comment that came close, but I think if you had asked the founders about their concerns about popular governance, the first thing they would have been doing is uh, buttoning the, the buttons on their uh, back pockets. Uh, and would have been concerned uh, really seriously about looting by the mob. And, of course, we've seen a lot of that uh, develop uh, since, but I think that that really would have been one of their concerns. wonder if you have a comment. Well, I completely agree with your first point, since I've written a book about it. I just haven't bothered to get it to a publisher. Uh, <laughs> but I have too many other projects. But uh, Witherspoon was actually at the convention for the formation of the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia at the same time as the Constitutional Convention, uh, which is an odd historic uh, event. And uh, both of them came out with systems of representative democracy. My bottom line is that the, the, uh, conv the Constitutional Convention did a better job. Uh, as a, I'm a Presbyterian, as we keep losing members daily. Uh, largely due to an unaccountable higher order. So, yes, I think the Presbyterians had uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, influence in terms of uh, setting up an example of here's how you could do it. But I think the, the, the Calvinist mood at the convention was even more Calvinist than the Calvinist mood at the, at the Presbyterian convention. I think it's an extremely good question. A lot of Marcy's work in this area is, is fascinating. Um, it, I, it's, it's clear, I think, that the... Uh, American Protestantism, uh, uh, can you hear me? Um, and the Protestant Reformation more generally in Europe as well uh, opened up the idea of um, less hierarchical government, opened up the idea that it's not popes or bishops that rule, but as Luther said, uh, all Christian men. 
um, and that that had an influence in the direction of um, the people as the source of authority, political authority, uh, in Protestant lands, including the United States, which was mostly, not exclusively, but mostly a Protestant land, uh, I think is clear. One of the interesting things, it seems to me, about Protestantism and Calvinism in particular was their ambivalence about the people. Uh, you see it in Luther's own life and career. Uh, he, he damned the whore of Babylon, the Pope, um, and the hierarchical structure of the Roman church. He was understood, or he later claimed misunderstood, uh, by a lot of people in Germany as a radical Democrat. Uh, and the, the, in the, the famous peasants' rebellion, peasants' war, a lot of the peasants, clearly the, the, the rebels, clearly thought of themselves as in some sense inspired by the Reformation ideas that were in the, in the, in the, in the wind and that, that, that Luther was in particular pressing. Luther was horrified. Uh, he had been trying to get uh, support from uh, princes. Um, and the last thing he wanted at that point was to be associated with uh, peasant rebellions. And uh, a little bit to everybody's surprise, he denounced them and applauded when they were hanged, drawn, quartered, burned at the stake, and a lot of them individually faced almost all of those fates uh, to his applause. So there was a, there was a kind of ambivalence, um, a, a clear uh, uh, rejection of church hierarchy that inspired um, a, uh, an impulse and a desire and a momentum for popular rule and a recoil against it as well. Um, and I think that, that uh, you, can see, you, you see that in Protestant religious history, uh, and you see it in the ambivalence of the um, mostly Protestant uh, secularized founders of the U.S., as you see it later on uh, among the progressives, and in a sense probably in, in the hearts of all of us. Uh, 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 you know, trust the people and mistrust the people. Yes. Going back to the founders, uh, didn't they have a, an idea that the legislators that would come to Congress and the Senate would be different people over time and not the same ones? Didn't they fail to anticipate the rise of professional representatives? And isn't the whole idea of term limits to get back to that concept? And that's why we have on, on the state level. Wouldn't it be a good idea to have a term limits on the federal level? Uh, just as we do for the president, we you know, restrict him to two terms. Well, well, you know, they didn't even expect to have a single city as the capital. The uh, Congress was going to move around cities for a while, and then uh, it turned out not to be very convenient for everybody, and they ended up landing on the Potomac. So I think that's right. There was no uh, sense that you would have not only a not a professional. Uh, set of representatives, but you wouldn't have anybody that was willing to do the circuit of the legislation, legislature all those years. And so, I, I mean, I think you're right. Term limits is one of the many proposals we've been banding about since uh, mid-20th century trying to figure out how you keep uh, a, a government in check. And it's just one of the lists that uh, the framers never thought about uh, and uh, would look at as an interesting option because it looks like one more structural way to bring people to account. So, 
My question is, what would uh, the framers think of the innovation uh, of the initiative and referendum in terms of acting as a relief valve? Think of two different subjects, abortion on one hand, abortion advocates for restriction, and say uh, pot decriminalization or marijuana decriminalization on the other hand. Factions develop in the country. They don't have an outlet. Don't they end up taking over the legislature as a way to accomplish their objective? Is it in the public good to have uh, a legislature primarily motivated by pot decriminalization or the obverse uh, uh, abortion restriction? I, I mean, I, th I think that's, that's, in a sense, the strongest case for uh, the initiative. Not as a, uh, not, not, not an idea of direct democracy, pure de what, what Madison denounced as pure democracy, namely the people trying to rule all the time about everything. But uh, uh, the initiative, for instance, as a, as a, as a counterweight and as something that, that gives an opportunity where uh, other avenues are closed off for people who, who want to make their case and want to try to persuade the public to, to have a way of doing it. Um, let me say something about, about the last question, which I think was also interesting. Um, and that was the idea of, of term limits, professional politicians. I, I think there, there was you know, an ambivalence about that, too. There was the Cincinnatus idea, you know, the, the classical idea that, that government should be done by um, a, a virtuous uh, farmer who leaves his plow, saves, the, saves Rome, and goes back to his farm. Uh, there was also an idea of honor through public service, uh, which in a way was a kind of counterweight against that. The, the, the idea that you, you, would, you would rightly, that it was a good thing to encourage people to want a career in which uh, they would act honorably and win honor uh, through government. Um, so I, th th there were the two ideas. One thought that, that uh, in a way doesn't quite come out in the term limits debate, but which is eh, at least interesting, um, is that certainly in 19th and early 20th century history, both in the United States and in Britain, um, the idea of professional politicians and in particular paid politicians uh, and implicitly therefore career politicians um, was a way actually of opening up politics. Uh, the experience was that otherwise what you had was wealthy gentlemen, uh, as in, in Britain, mostly aristocrats, uh, hereditary aristocrats, who were the only people who had the wherewithal, who had the money, um, to be able to serve unpaid and unprofessionally as, as in politics. Um, and the idea of paid uh, politicians and implicitly professional politicians was in England a Labour Party cause. Um, it was a left-wing cause, and the idea was um, if if people are paid, then more people, including you know our people, non-aristocrats, uh, will be able to get into this game. Whereas the way it had been, um, they can't. One of the uh, interesting dimensions of General Washington's first inaugural was his uh, reiteration of his unwillingness to take pay for performing service uh, to, the, to the public. Yes. Professor Hamilton, as I was uh, listening to your critique of the idea that the California initiative process represents any genuine voice of the people, um, I was thinking about the incredibly small number of representatives we have in this state compared to the size of the population 
And I was wondering what you think about the idea. Is there a point at which the ratio of representatives to the represented becomes so small that that idea disappears as well? Well, the framers certainly did think in those terms of uh, numbers of representatives per state and the numbers of representatives per the people, which is why you end up getting uh, proportional representation in the House and then only two senators in the Senate. And so that kind of proportionality, I think, was certainly on their minds. I think it's a fair point. Uh, I'd be the last one to say that legislators are getting it right right now. I think they remain uh, incredibly unaccountable, but I think we have a dearth of original thinking about how you bring them to accountability as opposed to how you escape them and go over to the initiative process. Uh, my problem with the earlier point, which is related actually, is that we know that in legislatures under Mansur Olson, who's a great political scientist, uh, his theory turned out to be correct that uh, small, cohesive, organized groups with a cohesive message do far better in a legislature than the somnolent majority that's either never thought about it or is just not highly motivated. I think that actually translates into the initiative process so that a highly mobilized group with good funding actually gets some of the same results as they would get in the legislature, which is they get the interest groups to put the issue on the ballot and they get their people to come out and vote and that somnolent majority continues to sit there either not knowing exactly what's happening or uh, not caring quite enough about that issue to race out. The problem between the two systems then, if they're that on par with each other, is that at least in the legislative body, the good legislator, when someone comes in with a proposal, no matter how well crafted, says, is there something bad about this idea? Is there something I shouldn't like about this idea? Whereas you don't get that moment of deliberation in the initiative process. So. Nowhere in the Articles of Confederation or in the Constitution is there any mention of political parties. And um, by the way, I'm, Professor, I'm rather fond of the Articles of Confederation because they did their job. They got us through the revolution, and that's what they were meant to do. So hurrah for the Articles. Uh, but um, uh, the question I would have is, are political parties, Washington was against it, a number of the founders were against political parties, our political parties, especially the way they've developed in the United States as national parties spreading across a vast continent, trying to encompass as many people as they possibly can, are they the institutionalization of democracy in the United States? One thing they've certainly been is an, institution, an institutionalization of a greater moderation uh, than you have in many countries where um, the political parties haven't been as big and haven't been as, as encompassing. Uh, one thing about American parties, uh, and it's encouraged in part by the Electoral College and by some of the indirect election checks and balances that the, that the founders wrote into our process, is that you have essentially uh, two big parties, very difficult for third parties to make, much headway or any headway, uh, certainly in electoral vote terms. Um, and uh, that the, the effect of that um, has been to uh, push the, the, those parties and therefore American politics somewhat to the center. Whether that will continue is obviously always, I mean, that, that, that's in the past, that doesn't guarantee the future. But uh, 
if you want to say a, if you want to give one or two cheers uh, for American political parties, I think probably uh, the best thing you could say you can say for them uh, has been that they have been a politically moderating force in the United States and uh, other Western European countries uh, that haven't had that same framework, uh, haven't had the same history of political moderation and political decency um, in the 20th century that the United States has enjoyed. We regret the young heckler. Uh, who's <laughs> on the, on without, the contrary, I think we probably have it coming. Scienter mens rea, I think the child has not reached the age of responsibility. Happily, I see the child being returned behind the glass doors. The last question. Thank you, Mr. Moderator. As a proto-Cesar Chavista, who I had the honor of representing for many years, I have a question that relates to the oblique reference of Maimon to uh, judges and the issue of uh, democracy, representative or direct, and asked the panelists what they would think that the founders would be thinking about the rise of the judiciary as the ultimate determiner of practically every cultural question uh, that our civilization now addresses. And with further regard to that, the issue of term limits. I wonder if uh, you would also comment on what the founders might think of term limits for judges, assuming that uh, Calvin included even judges among the fallen. Uh, <laughs> And in light of the, of the fact that a recent book by a, a well-known moderator I termed them first among equals, perhaps the moderator would comment as well. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure whether I made an oblique reference or merely a bleak reference. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, clearly, the founders didn't foresee um, the, the power that the judiciary uh, acquired in some ways in the late 19th century um, and then um, with a different political valence in the 20th century as well. Um, interestingly, I think there's, there's uh, on all sides of the political debate some, some uh, growing unease about it. Um, Larry Kramer, who's the, um, uh, a leftish uh, scholar at NYU, has just written a book essentially um, basically from the left uh, saying that it, it, the, the power of the judiciary that's developed in the 20th century betrays the, the vision of the founders, um, which in Kramer's view, and he, he makes a good case, uh, the, the, the founders had uh, considerably more faith uh, both in the people and in the uh, will of the people refracted through representative institutions uh, than they would ever have had uh, for a judiciary. Um, so whether that sort of left uh, uh, skepticism or left reservation about the judiciary will persist uh, if a Democrat is elected uh, and is making appointments to the judiciary, uh, we may or may not have a chance to see in, in coming months and years. Uh, but, but that there is that, that uh, uh, reservation across the spectrum, really, um, I think is, is, is right. And the, the, the founders would have been, um, to put it gently, surprised uh, by the cultural and ideological as well as political influence of the judiciary and of court decisions, um, I think is clear. Uh, 
As the court would say, Judge, our time has expired. But before the red light comes on, and I invite you to express our thanks to the panelists, I am put in mind in light of the questioner's kind suggestion that I might want to opine two very brief points. I do think Federalist 78, which gave voice, of course, to the beautiful concept of the least dangerous branch, nonetheless, Part B does represent a fairly vigorous defense of the idea of judicial review and that it will, in fact, be potentially used in a muscular way. So Hamilton's prophecy ended up coming true. It took decades for that to, in fact, happen. And so I would close in light of the fact that both the founders, although one was in France at the time serving as the minister to France, but both, of course, served famously in that first cabinet under the leadership of General Washington, that Hamilton, it's captured in Ron Chernow's biography, really trusted America and had a great, robust vision for America, but he wasn't so sure about Americans. It was very, very interesting. And in light of the two cheers for the Articles of Confederation, after all, they got us through the Revolution, what more could you possibly want? That from France, Mr. Jefferson did lament that while he approved of the idea of the convention gathering in Philadelphia, he thought perhaps three or four adjustments to what he called the venerable Articles would have sufficed. And ironically, he was very fearful, as we all know, of the presidency, which he was destined to occupy, and which in a letter, ironically, to John Adams, also destined to occupy our nation's highest office, he suggested that the presidency that had been created by Article II represented a bad version of the Polish king. I tend to think whatever we think of our presidential candidates, here we are in the library and museum and the shadow of Ronald Reagan. A lot of us give thanks for energy in the executive that the Federalist Papers lifted up. Speaking of energy, was this an energetic conversation between two wonderful panelists? Please join in expressing our heartfelt thanks. One modest correction of the record, uh, Professor Kramer at NYU is now dean at uh, the Stanford Law School, which is aspiring to be as highly ranked as Pepperdine. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right.